Next case is uh, Quad Graphics Inc. versus NC Department of Revenue, and we will hear from the appellant. Mr. Chief Justice, Associate Justices, and may it please the court. I'm Ryan Park from the North Carolina Department of Justice, and along with my colleague, uh, Ashley Hodges Morgan, I represent the Department of Revenue in this case. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Under the North Carolina Revenue Act, as established and maintained by our General Assembly, when an out-of-state retailer makes a sale to a North Carolina consumer, and that sale is delivered to that consumer in North Carolina, they must pay a sales tax. That destination-based sourcing regime mirrors the sales tax regimes of 40 of the 45 states in the nation that maintain a sales tax. And that includes South Dakota, whose sales tax statute survived a dormant commerce clause challenge in Wayfair. Wayfair, in two discrete ways, uh, shows that the taxes at issue here were constitutional. First, the court made clear that states retain the flexibility to determine, under their own state's laws, the location of a sale, and that it is perfectly permissible for them to decide that the location of a sale occurs where goods are delivered. Indeed, the court said, and this is page 2092 to 93 of the opinion, generally speaking, a sale, a sale is attributable to its destination. Second, the court also held that in this circumstance, when a good is delivered in state, there is a sufficient nexus between the sale and the state where goods are delivered. So to the extent that Quad's position here boils down to the fact that we must show a transactional nexus in order to tax, Wayfair itself establishes that that transactional nexus, nexus is met here. Uh, and in circumstances in Wayfair, uh, that was a facial challenge to a South Dakota statute that had a nexus requirement of $100,000 in annual sales or goods being delivered into South Dakota. Here we have an as-applied challenge to $20 million worth of sales into North Carolina. So to the extent that we're talking here about the facts of showing transactional nexus, uh, we would respectfully submit that the business court's decision cannot be squared with Wayfair. Speaking of Wayfair being controlling, how should we look at Dealworth and its awkward position in the case law these days? So that's a very apt way of describing it, awkward. Uh, I'd say uh, this, Your Honor, there are a couple of aspects of Dilworth that are not controverted. One is that it's never been expressly overruled by the Supreme Court. Um, but yet, everyone agrees. Quad agrees, the business court agreed, all the academic commentators agree that Dilworth has largely been repudiated. Its central holding, its holding uh, you know, in, in the Horn Books uh, until recent times, was that interstate sales are per se uh, exempt from, from state taxation. So everyone agrees that holding no longer reflects the law, even though Dilworth has never been expressly overruled. Uh, so that shows, in turn, two different things. One is, there's no magic words requirement to overrule Supreme Court precedent. Uh, I don't think uh, you could maintain a judicial system and, and have a magic words requirement. Uh, when there are truly irreconcilable decisions, the later decision, of course, controls. Uh, and so that exposes, you know, really the question here is, is there any part of Dilworth that remains the law? Uh, and I think that that issue has been crystallized very helpfully uh, for the court. Uh, if, you, if you can draw the lines, and I want to make sure I've got my lines drawn correctly in terms of, of the anatomy of, of these cases, it can be said that complete auto 
abandoned Dilworth. But it can also be said that Wayfair encompasses Complete Auto. So if Complete Auto abandoned Dilworth and if Wayfair indoctrinates Complete Auto, then it does stand to reason, according to what you're saying, that Wayfair would control. But yet Dilworth hasn't been overruled, so does Dilworth still figure into the aspects of all of this, or should it just be ignored by this court? So uh, I think that uh, it is helpful to try to find a way to reconcile the two cases. Uh, you know, this court being in the position uh, in its, that it's in, applying U.S. Supreme Court precedent, uh, I think that it's a very close question whether complete auto actually itself overruled Dilworth, and, and perhaps the U.S. Supreme Court will clarify that at some point. Um, but if you wanted to try to preserve that precedent and reconcile it with all the cases that have come afterwards, I think you would do what, what Quad did here, which is say, Dilworth stands for the proposition that states have to show a transactional nexus when they're imposing a sales tax. Uh, and uh, you know, then you go on to the, 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 you know, the, the meat of the question, which is how do you show a transactional nexus? And there, we actually helpfully have a lot of law from the Supreme Court. Uh, I would point the court to D.H. Holmes in addition to, to, to Dilworth. And, and D.H. Holmes did involve a use tax, but, uh, and, and so we can talk about that as well. Um, but in all other respects, uh, it was material of the same circumstance. It was uh, an out-of-state direct mail provider sending goods into Louisiana, Louisiana imposing uh, a, a, a use tax. Uh, and the court said, to say there's no transactional nexus in those circumstances, quote, verges on the nonsensical. Uh, you know, we have millions of dollars of goods that you're sending into a state. Of course, that constitutes a transactional nexus. Uh, you know, one other aspect of D.H. Holmes that's helpful in terms of trying to ascertain whether D. Uh, Dilworth remains the law is that was a use tax. And so if we have this Dilworth general trading dichotomy and that still remains the law, there was no there's no need to even have that case. They would have said, under general trading, uh, this use tax is per se constitutional. We're not even going to apply uh, the four-part complete auto test. Uh, but within the lexicon of, of dormant commerce clause challenges, you know, D.H. Holmes is actually one of the canonical cases for how do you apply the complete auto test. So they, they did that in a circumstance where under general trading, um, it would have been entirely superfluous. Um, so you know, I guess I, I would just say our primary position is that all these case laws, all these cases uh, demonstrate that uh, you know, Dilworth formalism has been abandoned. Uh, the Supreme Court has never said so, um, but when you have case after case after case that are irreconcilable with an earlier case, um, you know, the, the, the rule of law is that you follow them. A, a number of your, a number of uh, the amicus on behalf of uh, Quad and Quad itself says, okay, well, maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong, but it's not our job to make that determination, that that determination needs to be made by the U.S. Supreme Court, and they cite some cases, uh, primarily federal, but some state cases that say, in effect, we should not do that, sort of leaving us in the position that we left the Court of Appeals in in Cannon versus Miller years ago. What, what's your response to that? In other words, say what you want to say about what you think the law is, but apply Dilworth until the U.S. Supreme Court officially and formally repudiates it. So I think that that would be a path open to the court if we did not have Wayfair. Uh, again, I think that before Wayfair, it was truly a difficult question. Uh, but, but after Wayfair, we had a sales tax 
It was denominated as a sales tax. The word sales tax was in the South Dakota statute. It was a destination-based sourcing sales tax. So, uh, and in fact, uh, North Carolina amended its sales tax statute in 2020. It was a unanimous, uh, it was an unanimous uh, bill in the General Assembly uh, to essentially mirror South Dakota statute. Um, and uh, so, at least in relevant respects, at least in the relevant time, the statutes were the same. Uh, and you have the Supreme Court saying, uh, this statute, uh, uh, we examine it under the complete auto test, and it examines the first prong, the only prong of the test that's in dispute between the parties, substantial nexus, and it makes a square holding on page 2099 of the opinion. There is a substantial nexus in these circumstances. Uh, so, you know, I think when it's a, a close, difficult question, it's perfectly permissible for uh, a lower court, as this, is, this court is in this posture, to follow the directly controlling precedent. Um, but when there is a later directly controlling precedent, and it's impossible to reconcile, uh, just the simple rule of law is you have to follow the later one. Um, and, you know, I guess I would, I think it is helpful to try to analogize to different kinds of cases, uh, Your Honor. I mean, if this court had a 1944 precedent saying, you know, you can't search the glove compartment under, uh, you know, the, the, the state constitutional analog to the Fourth Amendment, uh, and then Four years ago, you issue a decision that says you can search the glove, department, uh, glove compartment. You know, the Court of Appeals, the trial court, of course, has to apply the latest precedent, uh, even if the, the earlier precedent hadn't been especially overruled. Uh, I guess I would uh, you know, like to point out the fact uh, that uh, a lot of this stuff can, can seem obscure. Uh, it was obscure to me at one point, uh, but it really is quite important. Uh, you have before uh, the, your, the court uh, a 20-state, multi-state amicus brief, uh, which is really an extraordinary step. We had states, a bipartisan, economically, geographically diverse set of states from Alabama to Vermont, all coming to the court saying, you know, this actually really matters. Uh, the idea that states can simply assess these taxes as a sales tax and not have uh, a significant administrative and compliance problem is simply not the case. Um, we had the Departments of Revenues uh, from all of these states you know, sign on to language saying that they have a paramount interest in having the flexibility to assess the sales tax. Um, you know, and this, I think, pairs with uh, another important kind of background factor uh, is that you know, our General Assembly has enacted a statute that says we would like to tax remote sales based on destination uh, sourcing. Uh, and, uh, it, there's also just a larger kind of policy at, at play here, uh, which is as the state has moved uh, towards emphasizing sales tax uh, to fund the operations of government, uh, that that presupposes that there's an efficient sales tax regime. Uh, and, and Wayfair... Well, I, th I, think, yeah. I think your colleagues argue in their brief that, you know, if you were to design a tax system, what you prefer might be more efficient, but that that's not a question for us in determining the constitutionality of the tax. I mean, response, if any, to that argument? Uh, so I agree completely. I, uh, I uh, just to be clear, uh, I agree that kind of the reason why the state uh, prefers assessing a sales tax over uh, a use tax isn't relevant to the constitutional issues before the court. Um, uh, I think I just wanted to emphasize uh, that there is kind of a theme uh, in, uh, in uh, Quan's brief, in the amicus briefs, 
uh, that this doesn't really matter, that somehow the department simply made a mistake in assessing the wrong tax. And, and that simply is not the case. We would not have 20 states here before the court saying that this well, matters. Well, the department couldn't assess a use tax against quad. That's, that's paid by the end user, typically, isn't it? So uh, use, use taxes are, are typically assessed against the user. Uh, our state has a seller collective use tax, so that's in the statute. Um, I think there, there's a couple points there that, that are relevant, uh, Your Honor. Uh, one is that although Quad here has not uh, interposed any sort of constitutional defense to the imposition of a, of a use tax, uh, they might well in another case. Uh, other taxpayers have in, in other cases. My understanding is that, that Quad itself may have in, in another state, and, and uh, you know, that kind of just exposes the, the, the fact that the Dilworth formalism uh, cannot be the case if you could interpose another constitutional defense to a use tax. Um, but really, the, the practical question I think that Your Honor was getting at is uh, that you know, use taxes are simply not as efficient. Uh, they are more difficult to administer, uh, and they're, they give rise to all sorts of inefficiencies and compliance traps that sales taxes are, are not subject to. Uh, so you know, that is you know, the, the department's reason for preferring a sales tax. So if the court has no questions uh, on that, uh, I guess I would like to emphasize uh, this aspect, the first argument that, that I tried to start out with, which is state law decides the location of a sale. Um, you know, this did not come from Wayfair. Uh, there are uh, many cases where uh, the Supreme Court, the US Supreme Court, has, has said that there's really no constitutional problem with a destination-based sourcing regime. Uh, I'd point the court, and this is in our, uh, I apologize for the late uh, filing, but our, our memorandum of additional authorities. Uh, so the Jefferson Lines case, uh, and this, to be clear, is Quad's lead case for arguing that Dilworth formalism still survives. And in the passage immediately following their discussion of Dilworth, uh, they say here that, quote, there is no constitutional trouble inherent in the imposition of a sales tax in the state of delivery to the customer. And then they go on to say, a sale of tangible goods can be located solely within the state of delivery. Uh, so, you know, I think the way to reconcile this with, with Dilworth, and, uh, you know, if, if you go back and you read Dilworth again and again and again and again, uh, you know, you won't find these, um, the source of law uh, that they're relying on to say that there's, um, you know, where the location of the sale takes place. Uh, but intervening Supreme Court precedent just makes clear that states have the flexibility to establish a destination-based sourcing regime. There's nothing unconstitutional about that. Um, and once that premise is established, then honestly, the entire Dilworth issue goes away uh, because these are in-state sales under North Carolina law, and there's no constitutional problem with North Carolina defining these as in-state sales. Uh, I will... Uh, Reserve the balance of my time after, I guess, one last point on complete auto. I think it's worth pausing just to understand that this may be an obscure area of law, but complete auto is a watershed decision. You know, it's equivalent to, say, like Heller in the Second Amendment context or quorum on the enforcement of state constitutional rights under our Constitution. It's cited hundreds and hundreds of times by courts all across the country whenever there's a dispute over um, state taxing authority under the Dormant Commerce Clause. Uh, 
And if you examine uh, complete auto closely, there are a couple things that, that are, are worth focusing on. So, so first, the, the tax at issue in complete auto was a disguised sales tax. Uh, it was a privilege of doing business tax, um, but you know, the way it operated was every, you know, a small percentage of every sales transaction uh, had to be remitted to the, uh, the State's Department of Revenue, Mississippi in that case. Uh, and you know, the very first line in the argument, uh, the discussion of the Supreme Court's opinion is, the taxes in question are sales taxes, uh, even though they had been labeled as privilege of doing business tax. Uh, and the same is true of Freeman, Spectre, all these old cases that have these taxes with funny names. Uh, the reason why they're denominated in that way uh, is because of, of Dilworth, because uh, there was a constitutional rule saying you can't impose these as sales taxes. Um, and what Complete Auto did, in unanimous, unanimously affirming what was a disguised sales tax, it says all these labels don't matter. Uh, really what matters uh, are the economic substance and whether, for example, uh, an out-of-state retailer is sending millions of dollars of goods into a state. And if the economic substance of the tax uh, shows that there's no dormant commerce clause problem, there's no burden on interstate commerce, then it's constitutional. Um, the second thing, if you examine complete audit closely, you'll see is that it incorporated by reference the dissent from Justice Rutledge in Freeman. So Justice Rutledge dissented, uh, actually, sorry, it was a concurrence um, in, in that case. Uh, but Justice Rutledge you know, laid out his view of how the Dormant Commerce Clause should work in this, in this area. Uh, and that's where the four factors come from, from Justice Rutledge's uh, mind. And he first articulated those factors uh, in his dissent in Dilworth. Uh, so we're talking you know, discrimination, undue burden, uh, preventing double taxation. That all comes from Justice Rutledge's concurrence in Freeman, his dissent in Dilworth. Um, and uh, in his concurrence in Freeman, he incorporated by reference his uh, concurrence, I'm sorry, his dissent in Dilworth. Uh, and he said this. He said that uh, there should be a constitutional preference for destination-based sourcing. He called it market-based sourcing um, because the whole purpose and policy of the Dormant Commerce Clause in this situation is to make sure from the consumer's perspective, in-state goods and out-of-state goods are, are being treated the same. So from you know consumer's perspective, if I buy a good from an out-of-state retailer or an in-state retailer, it's being subject to the same tax. And that's what destination-based sourcing does. Um, so, and that was you know, incorporated again. The idea was incorporated in Wayfair. So Justice Kennedy, in his opinion, uh, he has a long passage where he says, the whole policy of our law in this area is to make sure uh, that businesses uh, and consumers are being subject to the same tax, and it doesn't matter if you're interstate or out-of-state. Uh, um, and so I think it would just be a little bit strange for this court to say uh, that North Carolina cannot establish a destination-based sourcing regime when the very genesis of this doctrine uh, was from an opinion that said that that should be constitutionally preferred. If there are no questions, I'll reserve the balance of my time. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. May it please the court, Michael Bowen of the law firm of Ackerman LLP for Quad Graphics, Inc. 
Your Honors, the path of decision in this case is decidedly simple. The U.S. Supreme Court has made abundantly clear that lower courts must not engage in the practice of anticipatory overruling its precedent. The clearest expression of this directive from the court is found in Rodriguez, 1989 decision, 490 U.S. 477. The holdings in that case and cases that followed instructed that is the prerogative of the U.S. Supreme Court to overrule its own precedent. This prohibition against anticipatory overruling applies no matter how wobbly or moth-eaten that precedent may be. Importantly, the rule against anticipatory overruling also applies to state courts. And you've heard and read a lot about the Wayfair decision, both here today and in preparing for this case. That case is very instructive as to the application of anticipatory overruling in Rodriguez. In that case, the South Dakota Department of Revenue argued to the South Dakota Supreme Court that it should be the one to overturn Quill before it even got to the U.S. Supreme Court. The South, Dakota Department, the South Dakota Supreme Court declined the invitation from the South Dakota Department of Revenue, citing Rodriguez and noting that it's the decision of the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn their own precedent. Here, the Department of Revenue does not question the scope of the holding on Rodriguez. What the department is asking this court to do is to join it in an exercise of reading the tea leaves with the hope that this court will overrule Dilworth from below. The U.S. Supreme Court has long instructed lower courts not to read tea leaves to evaluate the vitality of its precedent. The holding in Dilworth is and has been the law of the land for over 80 years. The department concedes as it must that the U.S. Supreme Court has not expressly overruled Dilworth's holding relating to transactional nexus. In light of this concession by the department and the directive from the U.S. Supreme Court against anticipatory overruling, this court is bound by the holding in Dilworth. The arguments raised by the department and its amici for overturning Dilworth should be made to the U.S. Supreme Court, not to this court. Now, Your Honors, at this point, I suppose I could sit down, give you about 27 minutes and 25 seconds extra for lunch. As much as I would like to do that, the department and its amici have argued that Dilworth has been implicitly overruled. When I say implicitly, I want in your head to think tea leaves. Implicitly overruled by decisions in complete auto and in Wayfair, as Justice Morgan raised previously. There's no mistaking the fact that complete auto changed the course of the court's Commerce Clause jurisprudence. Prior to complete auto, the court employed a very strict approach to the application of the Commerce Clause. If a state sought to tax the privilege of engaging in interstate commerce, that law was simply struck down. In complete auto, the court scrapped its strict approach and adopted the four-prong, more flexible test that we use today. It's certainly true that Dilworth was decided at a time when the now discarded strict approach was in play. That said, Dilworth lives on to this day because of the case relates to what's called transactional nexus. And I'll get to exactly what that means in a moment. In other words, Dilworth makes clear that there are constitutionally relevant distinctions between a transaction subject to sales tax and a transaction subject to use tax. What the department and its amici fail to recognize is that the holding a complete auto actually incorporates Dilworth's requirement of transactional nexus. The first prong 
of complete auto in its test is that a state must have a, quote, substantial nexus with the activity subject to tax. I'm sorry, I may be a little slow on the uptake. Did you just say that the complete auto test incorporated the Dilworth test? Yes, sir. Yes, Your Honor. In that case, why do we need to worry about Dilworth if its uh, essence is included in complete auto? Because Dilworth lives on. The transactional nexus requirement is part of the current Commerce Clause test. If complete auto adopts Dilworth's test of transactional nexus. Well, the reason I asked the question is Mr. Park says, in effect, we're advocating for the complete auto test. You're, I'm having a little trouble seeing where you're differentiating yourselves from each other if sure. Mr. Park's, if I'm correctly understanding what Mr. Park's argument is, if he's got, a, oh, 12 minutes or so to set me straight if I'm wrong. Yes, Your Honor. I appreciate your question. I appreciate it was asked so early because I think there's some clarifications that need to be made. And that's that, again, and this relates to the discussion I had a moment ago regarding Dilworth and the time at which it was decided. The constitutional test that was used by the U.S. Supreme Court to evaluate Commerce Clause challenges at the time of Dilworth was very strict. But Dilworth stands for more than that. Dilworth stands for the transactional nexus component. Where does a stale take place for the purposes of the Commerce Clause? At what point do we say the state is reaching outside its borders to tax a sale that occurs in another jurisdiction. That does nothing to do with the court's general commerce clause theory that it was that eschewed in complete auto. What I'm saying, or what Quad is saying, is that Dilworth's transactional nexus holding, meaning the importance of determining the situs of a sale for commerce clause purposes, remains. And it's not just Quad saying that. I mean, we've cited numerous articles, and we're going to talk about various decisions that occurred after complete auto that adopt that very decision and that Dilworth continues to live on. Did you have a follow-up? Okay. I'm just, I'm just listening. There is further evidence that Complete Auto did not implicitly rule Dilworth, overrule Dilworth. Your Honors, Complete Auto was decided on March 7th, 1977. Exactly four weeks later, on April 4th, 1977, the court handed down its decision in National Geographic. And that's 430 U.S. 551. The facts of National Geographic closely follow those in this appeal with one distinction. And that one distinction is in National Geographic, California sought to impose a use tax. Unlike in this case, where North Carolina sought to impose a sales tax. In support of its holding in National Geographic, that California could impose the state use tax, the court expressly cited Dilworth for the exact same holding that Quad Graphics does today. Let me repeat that again. A mere four weeks after the court purportedly overruled Dilworth in complete auto, the same court cites Dilworth for the exact same proposition that Quad Graphics does here today. This fact alone makes readily apparent that the court in complete auto did not intend to overrule Dilworth. But wait, there's more. More recently, in 1995, in the case of Oklahoma Tax Commission versus Jefferson Lines, citation 514 U.S. 175, the court again cited favorably to the transactional nexus holding in Dilworth. Now, counsel to the department did not explain, but I think it's important to highlight the facts in Jefferson Lines. Jefferson Lines dealt with the sales tax imposed on the sale of a bus ticket purchased in Oklahoma. The taxpayer believed that it should not be responsible to pay 100% of the Oklahoma sales tax because the bus travel that that ticket purchased was partly in Oklahoma 
and partly outside of Oklahoma. So they felt as though they should have only paid an apportioned piece of that sales tax. The court in Jefferson Lines cited directly to Dilworth in saying that the situs of a sale happens in one unique place, the state of the sale, and cites Dilworth for that proposition. <clears throat> Should we be influenced by the fact that in this age now of online sales that the 1944 Dilworth case pales in comparison to the 2018 Fair case in terms of looking at applicability here? That's a great question, Justice Morgan. And here is another, and I'm glad, you, again, you asked it so early in the, in the argument, because this requires me to step back for a moment and clarify something that was raised in the department's um, oral argument. There's a critical distinction in the SALT world, when I say SALT, state local tax. SALT world regarding the distinction between personal nexus and transactional nexus. There are two different unique concepts in my world. Personal nexus deals with the relationship between the taxpayer and the taxing state. And as you might guess, transactional nexus deals with the relationship between the transaction and the taxing state. And in order for sales and use taxes to apply, you need both. It's not just enough to have personal nexus over a taxpayer, you also have to have nexus over the transactions that the, tra that the taxpayer is engaged in. Unless you have both together, personal nexus and transactional nexus, the state's tax is invalid under the Commerce Clause, under the first prong of complete auto, which is substantial nexus. If the, assuming that we're all on the same page now, the Wayfair decision dealt with personal nexus. How do I know that? It's easy, actually. The, the, the Wayfair decision overturned Quill. And for those of you who have read Quill in preparation for this case, Quill dealt with personal nexus, meaning that in that case, the court determined in order to satisfy the Commerce Clause, the taxpayer, was, the taxpayer was required to have a physical presence in the taxing state. And so on the lead up to Wayfair, that was what the court wanted to do, was to overturn Quill. Quill was a physical presence case relating to personal nexus, not transactional nexus. And why is that important? Quill dealt with a use tax and didn't deal with a sales tax. Now, one more thing. So we assume we're all on the same page as regarding personal nexus versus transactional nexus. Those two factors come into play differently with respect to sales and use taxes. And I'm going to go one step removed and make it a little bit more complicated. If you're dealing with issues of personal nexus, and that's the sole issue in dispute, it doesn't matter what the tax is. It could be a sales tax, it could be a use tax. Again, transactional nexus and personal nexus are two different things. So in Wayfair, it didn't matter what the court called the tax because the issue was about personal nexus. And we cite in our brief several quotes that the court made regarding what it was deciding and what it wasn't deciding. On page 2099 of the opinion in Wayfair, the court summed up its holding by stating, for these reasons, comma, the court concludes that the physical presence rule of Quill is unsound and incorrect. Direct citation to the, the personal nexus issue that was in dispute in Quill. On page 282087, the court, the court stated, quote, all concede that taxing the sales in question here is lawful. Page 2092, all agree that South Dakota has the authority to tax these transactions. In other words, the issue of transactional nexus was never before the court in Wayfair. The parties conceded it. 
It moved on. Everyone understood Wayfair was about personal nexus, not transactional nexus. And why does that matter? Dilworth is the, transaction, is the penultimate transactional nexus case. It lives on through Complete Auto, National Geographic, Jefferson Lines. And, but again, it's not just us citing the cases. Professor Lawrence Tribe, in his 1978 edition of his constitutional law treatise, notes that Dilworth, again, was a transactional nexus case. And there is some tension, obviously, between Dilworth and some of the more modern cases. Uh, and Dilworth, again, not being overruled, certainly does still have some impact. Uh, one of those impacts, and I'd be interested in how you feel about it, is the fact that Dilworth does note that the location of a sale is determined by state law. And so if North Carolina determines that a sale has occurred in such a manner that the recipient, namely a North Carolina resident, receives the goods in North Carolina, then doesn't Dealworth allow the state of North Carolina to assess a sales tax if Dealworth recognizes the fact that North Carolina may do that? Correct. I'm glad that you raised that argument as well, because I think that the department here, council, was smart to lead with this argument and not lead with complete auto and Wayfair controlling the day and kind of lean on the state sourcing argument, and I'll get to that right now. The department's fallback position in this case is that their position is entirely consistent with Dilworth. According to the department and its amici, under the holdings in McGoldrick and Dilworth, the location of the sale is controlled by state law, and here, North Carolina statutes provide that a sale takes place upon delivery to a North Carolina buyer. This fallback argument is incorrect for two independent reasons. First, the holdings in McGoldrick and Dilworth make clear that the court did not rely on state law to determine the situs of the sale. And second, the Dilworth court defined the location of a sale based on the location of transfer of possession of the purchased property. Now, Your Honor, the issue in dispute in McGoldrick, which is the primary case I believe that the department relies on for their state sourcing <coughs> argument, was whether certain sales of coal were subject to New York City sales tax. Under New York City law at the time, a sale was sourced to New York City if the, per if the transfer of title or possession of tangible personal property occurred in the city. That's page, one four that's, I'm sorry, page 43 of the decision. The US Supreme Court upheld the imposition of the New York City sales tax. Why? Because in that case, the seller actually traveled and took the coal into the city and personally delivered it to the, to the buyer. But that's not what's, what's important. The, the court in McGoldrick declined to rely on New York City law. This is not a guess or an interpretation on my part. I'm not asking you to read the tea leaves. On page 49 of the decision, the court noted that the taxable event for Commerce Clause purposes was the transfer of possession of the property to the purchaser. The time and place of passage of title reference to the New York City law was not relevant to the constitutional question before the court. In Dilworth, which was decided four years after McGoldrick, the court explained that McGoldrick determined the constitutional question at issue based on, quote, practical notions of what constitutes a sale, end quote. Dilworth itself looked to practical notions of what constitutes a sale and not state law in the 1995 Jefferson Lines case, for example, the court didn't look to Oklahoma law to determine where a sale took place. The court cited Dilworth 
for the proposition that practical notions of where a sale takes place, the transfer of possession. Where did you purchase what you purchased? Where did you purchase the goods or the ticket? Where was that? That is the location of the sale. Reliance on the Wayfair decision is also no help to the department on this point. Wayfair dealt, again, with personal nexus, not transactional nexus. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, just on that point, that, that Wayfair only dealt with um, personal nexus and not transactional nexus, it, it, it's, it appears to me that at the end of the opinion, the court goes on to say several things about um, the, the general um, way in which the South Dakota law is consistent with the Commerce Clause and does say that the um, complete auto test is met, that substantial nexus, that a nexus is established by this law. After it says, okay, we, we've overruled Quill, we, you don't, you know, the, 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 they don't have the personal nexus, we, we've solved that. But we also think that the complete auto test is met and it says, um, goes on to say, South Dakota's tax system includes several features that appear designed to prevent discrimination against or undue burden upon interstate commerce. It does seem that the court, in the, the majority of that court, did go beyond just the personal nexus issue. Now that last statement you just made where the court discussed different um, safeguards of the South Dakota law to prevent discrimination, again, that was in the personal nexus context. Well, but, but why would it be wrong for North Carolina to rely on this holding of the Supreme Court in, in fashioning its own law? Because, again, the, North, the Wayfair decision was premised. You can't rely, I mean, our position is you can't rely on a U.S. Supreme Court case that didn't discuss the issue upon which you're arguing. And in this case, we're arguing about what, whether transactional nexus applies or not through Dilworth. And the court, again, through its own statements, stated that all parties conceded the transactional nexus issue was never before the court in the case. And this is not, again, not just me talking. The most, one of the more preeminent state and local tax treatises that's used in the entire country, in law, law school offices, in my office, it's called the Federal, Federal Limitations on State Taxation. It's been around forever. The authors, in 2020, referring to, Dil, referring to Wayfair and Dilworth, expressly state that Dilworth remains the law of the land post-Wayfair, post because Wayfair did not deal with the transactional nexus issue. Does that answer your question, Justice Earl, or did I just completely avoid your question? No, I understand your okay. answer. Thank you. So is it your contention that the sale is complete when uh, your client delivers uh, its product to a uh, I guess uh, uh, some uh, third party to then make the delivery into North Carolina? Yes. In this case... So, so at what point, if that's your answer, then at what point would the consumer in North Carolina be responsible for paying for the product? At what point would they be responsible for paying for the product? Yes. They, they would pay for it presumably prior to delivery. I'm not exactly sure in this case if the North Carolina customers paid for it in advance or if, they if, they, if they never received the product, have they purchased anything? Well, certainly. If, they've, if, if they they've, never receive it, they doesn't mean are you didn't still responsible for, for paying? Well, I think that's a contractual issue, I think, between the buyer and the seller. As well, if we're trying to determine where the transaction took place, it seems to me that a North Carolina buyer is not responsible ultimately for paying for a product until they actually receive it. 
you bring up an excellent point, and I think this is directly res responded to in our brief when we cite to Lawrence Tribe's uh, treatise. He says that Dilworth, although it's a transfer of possession case, the better test is risk of loss, right? Ultimately, when the risk of loss is transferred from the buyer to the seller, that's where the transaction is, is better deemed to have occurred under the constitutional test. So what you're saying is we need to look at the contractual arrangement between the seller and the buyer and determine uh, even though a buyer may have paid in full for a product, if the buyer never receives it, whether the buyer is responsible or whether the seller is? Yes. Where, where, where was so the risk it, of So it will vary from one out-of-state uh, vendor uh, says whether you get the product or not, you got to pay for it. Another out-of-state vendor says you don't have to pay for it uh, if you never receive it. We're supposed to do that type of analysis. I don't know what North Carolina sales tax laws state about you know, incomplete sales. I don't know if sales tax is due on the <coughs> sales or not. But what, what I think Your Honor is getting at, and again, I don't mean to mis mischaracterize or restate your question the way I would like it, but I think that here we have to keep in mind that in the event that Quad Graphics did not, was not liable for sales tax, and we believe we completely were not, we were responsible if the department had done its job correctly on audit, responsible for use tax. And again, this is the general trading case that was decided the same day as Dilworth. Same facts, the only difference was the state in that case imposed a use tax and said you can make the seller responsible for collecting the use tax. And this goes to Justice Irvin's question earlier about aren't use taxes quite, quite difficult to collect from the user? Well, many, many states, not just North Carolina, make the remote seller responsible for collecting those taxes. And there's perfectly valid constitutional law that the department could have relied on here to require Quad to do that. But again, in Dilworth, the distinction between sales and use tax is critically important. The Dilworth court said that a sale, the sales tax is, is imposed on the freedom of purchase, while a use tax is imposed on the use of what was purchased. Now that our interruption is over, uh, let's say hypothetically we've got two situations. One, I buy something from company A, and everybody's got, when you do that uh, online, everybody winds up having to check, I accept your terms and conditions. And so we've got one person, one seller sends me something, I buy something from that seller, and that seller's terms and conditions, for whatever reason, say what yours clients do here, which is that, uh, title changes in Wisconsin. Uh, let's say we've got another seller that says title changes when it gets to my house in North Carolina. Is the treatment of, is the, of constitutional rules applicable to the collection requirement that you collect sales tax differ based upon those two, the, the difference in those two sets of terms and conditions? And that's what Dilworth and Children Trading are all about. In the first, which is the Wisconsin case, that should have been a use tax imposition because the sale took place outside North Carolina. And your other example, but, if I understood it correctly, the sales tax should have been imposed. Well, if, it, if, if whether what the, the situs at which a sale occurs is a matter of federal constitutional law, why would it matter what the terms and conditions uh, agreed to between this, me and my two sellers were? Well, I think the court in, in both Dilworth McGoldrick and the other cases that we cite 
look to, they don't look to state law. They looked ultimately to where the parties agree the transfer of possession took place. In many cases, that's easy, right? Like the bus ticket case, that's very easy to understand where the bus ticket was purchased. In cases that you're mentioning, it's a little bit more complicated. But what we do know for certain. I mean, but I guess my question is, is it a matter of just some generally, I mean, I understood you to say earlier there was a constitutional standard for when the, when the, where the sale occurred separate and apart from what state law provided. Uh, is the same true, it's also separate and apart from the contractual arrangements between the buyer and the seller? I believe so. I believe that the, the court in Doeworth, and I think that later courts applying Doeworth, would again use the Doeworth test, which is practical notions of what constitutes a sale. And transfer of possession is what the court has historically used. And I indicated to Justice, Chief Justice Newby that Lawrence Tribe has indicated that maybe that shouldn't be truly the test. It's kind of fluffy, but maybe it should have been one of risk of loss, ultimately. Um, but yes, I think that the court would not look to state law, and I think they would have looked, depending on what transactions come before it, and apply the appropriate test, which is what we believe to be the Dilworth test. Um, if I'm not answering your question, I do. I think, I think you've answered it. Okay. So I think that it's important to address certain policy arguments that were raised here both by the uh, amicus MTC and the amici for the states. I think the amici for MTC um, is proposing a solution in need of a problem. Um, and what I mean by that is, is that th their argument ultimately is that there needs to be the ability to simplify tax systems. We need to be able to merge sales and use taxes into one statute to make it easy. But they've cited no U.S. Supreme Court decision where these type of policy considerations was the basis, any basis, for overturning otherwise valid U.S. Supreme Court precedent. So this is why we refer to it as a solution in need of a problem. Now, ultimately, there's no confusion as to how sales and use taxes apply. Remote sellers completely understand. And Justice Irvin, this might get to your complicated, relatively complicated question for me which is that you know, the difference between sales and use taxes on various transactions. If you're not a business owner or have a business owner, you might not understand this or know this, but sales and use taxes are reported by remote sellers on one return. It's not like they're divided up. So it means sellers, they completely understand that their sales are subject to sale and or use tax in a, in a state. There's no confusion. There's no confusion among state courts. This, we've cited several, countless state courts that have cited Dilworth. They understand how the sales and use tax systems work. The states understand how the sales and use tax systems work. That's why they have both a sales tax and a use tax statute like North Carolina. Everyone understands how it works. There's no confusion. There's no need to overturn Dilworth for the, under the, the guise that we need some sort of simplification. The amici for the states raises a different issue. And their, their position is ultimately the same concerns that caused the U.S. Supreme Court in Wayfair to overturn Quill are present here. That is simply not the case. The issue in Wayfair was an artificial competitive advantage that was created by remote sellers not having a physical presence in a state, personal nexus, and being able to avoid having to charge sales and use tax on remote sales versus their competitors who did have a physical presence in the state and who were required to remit sales and use taxes. So that created a lot of revenue losses for states, as you might guess, and that's the reason why Wayfair, one of the main reasons why Wayfair thought that Quill was wrongly decided, at least in, in the context of today's modern economy, 
So in this case, there's no revenue loss to be concerned about. Again, if the department had simply assessed a use tax, we wouldn't be here. I'd be home in Jacksonville, probably hanging out with my kids. The reality is that they simply assessed the wrong tax and that the, the authority that we rely on is crystal clear and it has not been overruled by the US Supreme Court or even any other state Supreme Court. And again, I want to close by noting that the department's arguments are foreclosed by the holding in Rodriguez. The 1989 decision on Rodriguez, the department's arguments and that of its amici are best suited for argument before that court, not this court. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, so first at the outset, I mean, we will concede to the high heavens that you do not have the authority to anticipate that the U.S. Supreme Court will overrule one of its precedents. That's not what we're asking for here. Uh, we're, our position has always been that the Supreme Court has already implicitly overruled uh, Dilworth, at least those aspects of the holding that would disallow the taxes at issue here. Uh, and uh, again, there's no controversy uh, about that rule of law. Uh, we submitted, again, and I apologize for the late nature of the Memorandum of Additional Authorities, uh, you know, treatise by, by two Supreme Court justices, 10 other federal judges, uh, who said, of course, if there's a truly inconsistent later decision, the later decision controls. Uh, and so we're not asking for an anticipatory overruling. Uh, and I apologize if there's any uh, misunderstanding uh, on that. I, I'd just like to make two quick points. Um, there's a lot of complicated issues here, but actually, the area of disagreement between the parties is helpfully very narrow. Uh, we agree that Dilworth, to the extent that it remains the law, is reflected in the first prong of the complete auto test. That's the substantial nexus requirement. And Quad's position is that substantial nexus is composed of two parts, personal nexus and transactional nexus. In Wayfair, again, everyone agrees that Wayfair said in this circumstance, you don't need to show a physical presence to meet the uh, personal nexus requirement. And then in the very next section, uh, our position is, and this is on page 2099 of the opinion, uh, that they also make a square holding on transactional nexus. So the definition of transactional nexus is there must be a connection, a sufficient connection between the tax, uh, sorry, the, the transaction you're attempting to tax and the state. That's the requirement. That's the definition of transactional nexus. Can I just ask then, what's your response to what I understood the argument on the other side to be that that essentially was dicta because it wasn't contested in that case? So I agree that uh, the taxpayer in Wayfair, uh, you know, Wayfair, uh, did not uh, interpose uh, Dilworth as a defense, never uh, raised it. It was raised in some of the amicus briefs, or at least one amicus brief. Uh, but nevertheless, the court went on to make a ruling on transactional nexus. You know, you don't see the words transactional nexus or personal nexus anywhere in the opinion, um, but the definition of transactional nexus is whether there's a connection between the activity and the taxing state. And so they set up this uh, under you know, Roman numeral five uh, of the opinion. They say, now we're gonna address the substance of transactional nexus. Uh, the first prong of the complete auto test, in the absence of Quill and Ballas Hess, so disregarding physical presence, the first prong of the complete auto test simply asks whether the tax applies to an activity with a substantial nexus with the taxing case, uh, the taxing state. Uh, and that is the definition of transactional nexus. Um, and I, I don't think there's any disagreement on that score. We cited in our reply brief, you know, uh, that 
uh, transactional nexus being defined in that way by one uh, of the law review articles that Kawada submitted. And then in the next paragraph, they say, the substantial nexus requirements of complete auto uh, is satisfied in this case. So they make a square holding that substantial nexus as a whole is satisfied. Remember, Quad's position, and we agree, is that substantial nexus has these two components, personal and transactional, and the court makes a square holding that both parts, the entirety of the, the test, uh, is satisfied in this case. Indeed, they say it's clearly sufficient um, uh, in that case. So, uh, you know, I think to the extent that the disagreement is about uh, how transactional nexus applies on these, on these facts, Wayfair answers it. Uh, and that's our, our position. Um, the, the second big issue is uh, uh, whether there's a constitutional law of tax sourcing. So Quad's position is that Dilworth creates a constitutional law of tax sourcing. Sales must take place where there's a transfer of ownership. It bears noting, you know, I don't think this is uh, you know, strictly relevant, but that position would render unconstitutional this, the destination-based sourcing statutes of 40 states. Uh, so it's a pretty dramatic position that they've taken here, uh, including, of course, uh, North Carolina's. Uh, and uh, that the, the Larry Tribe treatise uh, and the, um, the discussion of, you know, is that a valid reading of Dilworth? That predated Jefferson Lines. So the, the second case that we think uh, on this other issue uh, favors our position definitively is Jefferson Lines. Now, I direct the court to page 188 of the opinion. So it's right after they discuss Dilworth. Um, and they say, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I quoted this, statute, uh, this, this text earlier, but they say there's no constitutional trouble in the imposition of a sales tax in the state of delivery. That is what they say right after they talk about, uh, about Dilworth. Now, it, it took me a little while as a non-tax person to understand why these two conflicting statements might be the case. Um, but it actually makes sense when you understand the context of the, the decision. So Jefferson Lines uh, was about how do you apportion a tax? So it's an interstate bus trip, uh, and does you know, Oklahoma get to tax the entirety of the bus trip, or you know, if part of it's in a different state, uh, do they get to tax the rest of it? And the Supreme Court said no. Uh, a sale takes place in a single state. And that's why they cited Dilworth, and they cited McGoldrick. They said, you know, we're not going to get into th those uh, you know, kind of really complicated issues of trying to apportion the tax revenue uh, on interstate travel. Um, but they, they take pains, they, they make pains to say, we're not saying as a constitutional matter what that state has to be. It can be the state of delivery, it can be uh, the state of origin. Uh, states have the authority to decide for themselves. Uh, so, you know, I guess one other uh, point that, that I think is helpful in trying to piece this all together is that in Dilworth, there was no state statute. There was no state sourcing statute at issue there. It was all a matter of, um, you know, reading, uh, the, Supreme Court press, the, the state Supreme Court precedent in that case. Uh, you can arguably say that they're making a constitutional rule, um, but then, you know, these later cases come, come along where there are state statutes and the Supreme Court applies them. And, and that includes, of, of course, Wayfair. Um, and they note uh, that, uh, like our position here, you know, it's just a reality that most states have adopted destination-based sourcing statutes, like the one here. Um, so on this second issue, uh, it really allows the court to avoid this whole question of does Dilworth control? Uh, because Dilworth can be read as, as simply uh, a transactional nexus holding and as agnostic on 
the location of a sale. Uh, it really would be chaos, uh, as I think Justice uh, Irvin's questions were alluding to, to say that as a constitutional matter, uh, states have to say that uh, the location of a sale is when there's a transfer of ownership, and the state statutes are, are all unconstitutional if they have something to the contrary. Uh, it would be chaos. Uh, how is the Department of Revenue supposed to know where different transactions uh, in private contracts uh, you know, place the, the transfer of ownership? Uh, it, it simply is just impossible. Uh, and I think the, the comeback from, from, from Quad would be, and I think it's a good one, is, well, why don't you just assess a use tax? Uh, and that really gets back uh, to some of the discussion uh, I was uh, raising earlier, which is use taxes are, are sub subject to some of the same problems. At the time of sale, it's often not clear where a product is going to be used, uh, but it is, it is almost always clear where a product is delivered. And uh, if the Dilworth formalism uh, were, uh, were remain the law, uh, I think what you would see is you would see additional constitutional challenges being brought against use taxes, saying that under the complete auto, there's not a sufficient nexus uh, and that sort of thing if goods aren't being used. Uh, in the taxing state. It really is not a solution to this problem. That's why you have uh, such a broad, bipartisan, geographically, economically diverse set of states here saying, do not uh, suggest <laughs> that our state statutes are also unconstitutional. It would mean a dramatic loss of revenue uh, and a loss in our ability to rely on sales taxes to fund, to fund government. So uh, there are no further questions. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you to both counsel. Clerk.